Thank you, Jeff. Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter chapter 3. It's printed for you there in your worship folder. Uh, and so you can follow along there with us. It'll be on the screen for you that are at home. It'll be on the screen behind me. Or you can grab, if you're here in the room, you can grab a Bible from the pew uh, and read along with me. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's so good to be with you this morning as uh, we head into this next week of celebration. And so let's read the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord together. Hear God's word from this passage in 2 Peter. Probably will be familiar to some of you. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you ought to be in lives of Holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Uh, This is God's word. And so uh, in these weeks here in the month of November, we've been asking a question, uh, particularly in light of the things that have been going on in our, in our world, in our nation. Are you living from your true citizenship? If you're a person of faith, the Bible says that you're a citizen of heaven. Are you living from your true citizenship? Or let me ask it this way. Are you rejoicing that your names are written on the roll of heaven? There's a point in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples were uh, were, were celebrating the success that they were seeing in the ministry that he had given to them as he had sent them out. And he stopped them in the middle of their celebrating how well things were going in their life and saying, don't rejoice in any of that. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That that should be the great rejoicing of our lives, that we are already on the citizenship role of heaven, if, you're, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus. And of course, if we're citizens in heaven, that means that we're exiles on the earth. And that's what Peter's writing about. He's writing to, in chapter 1 of the first letter he wrote, verse 1, exiles, or he says the elect exiles of the dispersion. And so he's saying we're an exiled people. Resident aliens might be the best translation of that phrase there. And that just refers to a foreigner who resides in a different country alongside the natives of that place. That's who we are in the world. And I like resident aliens because it really gets at the tension that we have to live with. And that's really been what we've been trying to talk about in this series of sermons, this tension that we are not native to the earth, that in fact our citizenship is in heaven. We are extraterrestrial, as weird as that sounds. There are extraterrestrials in the galaxy. It's us. But we're also to live our calling out here. And I've always liked the way that Bach Tower Gardens expresses their mission. I love to go down there. Uh, and they have it posted everywhere, that Edward Bach's grandmother apparently told him, make the world a little better and a little more beautiful because you've lived in it. And that's so good. We're called to invest and to build into the world with the promise that all that is done in faith will carry over into the next. That while the dross of sin that remains on the world will be burned off, there will be much good that will go with us. It will come through the furnace of judgment, even more pure and precious, and we'll get to enjoy it there as well. Now, 
Next week begins Advent. Can you believe that? Christmas is right around the corner. And next week begins that series, that, that's that season of Advent. And in Advent, we are reminded that the one we have been talking about these weeks, the serpent crusher, the sin bearer, the cloud rider, he has come. Heaven's invasion of the earth has begun. Eternal life is now. You don't have to wait until you die and go to heaven to live it. God's future for the world has been pushed back into the present. And through repentance and faith, we can begin to live eternal life right now, this moment. Forgiven of our sins. Given authority to trample the heads of serpents. Building for eternity. But not completely. Never without also experiencing the frustrations and the setbacks and the heartbreaks that come with living in a world that has not yet been made new. A world that's still held in, um, held in sin's weakening grip. But this one who has come, Jesus Christ, he's gone away and he's promised to come again. And that means there's a certain tension again in our experience. We, we have all, you know, we have all I've already described, but there's also right alongside of all of those great promises that have come true and Jesus is coming, we have alongside of it an incompleteness, a restlessness, a longing. In everything, we experience this not-at-homeness, which we should embrace because it reminds us of our true citizenship. We belong to heaven, and so we're waiting for the one who is already in heaven to come and bring heaven with him. And that has been the focus of these sermons, and you'll see that it is again today here in Second Peter. Now, let me stop before we go any further to say this. To belong to heaven does not mean we have to wait, wait it out until God takes us away from the earth and up into heaven. According to Peter, and that's why we chose this text this morning, look there, it's, it's just the opposite. The hope, Peter says, the final outcome of, in human history will be to see the earth become heaven. <clears throat> bit by bit, of course, until Jesus comes again. And then when he comes again, he will bring heaven with him and the world will be dramatically changed, transformed, not bit by bit, but then all at once into this new thing that God desires for us and for it to be. Now, the image of fire in this passage does not mean, you'll, you'll notice, and if you go all the way back to verse 3 even, I mean, all the way really from the beginning of chapter chapter 3 through Second Peter, you'll see this image of fire and it does not mean that the world will be burned up in the end. We've, I, I've heard it mistakenly applied that way. That's not at all what this means. The world will not be burned up as much as all of the evil that is still clinging the, of the, to the world will be burned away. And it will, it will fall off. All the dross, all the, the impurities will just fall away. And a new heavens and a new earth, verse 13 there, will emerge from this fire of judgment. And it will be, we're told there in verse 13, a place where righteousness dwells. And that phrase is so wonderful. It will be the home of righteousness is what it really means. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where everything is right, where everything is the way that it's supposed to be, where nothing is broken or out of place. Or you could translate the phrase like this. You could say he says we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth where we will dwell in righteousness, where we will be right. Well, we will finally have the experience of being where we know we've belonged all along, like the unicorn in C.S. Lewis's story at the end of the Narnia books, where he says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it until now. That will be our experience. And that, that should be what we're living for. That's what I want to say. 
Okay, that's really been the focus in these weeks, that that is what we should be living for. We work, of course, to make the world a little better and more beautiful, but ultimately we know that all of our hopes and dreams for the world we live in will come about only when Jesus returns to make all things new. And that's the tension that we have to live with. And so in Advent, we will focus more on the kingdom come in the weeks ahead, but today we're going to talk about the kingdom not yet because we're still on the way home. Or maybe it's better to say that our home is still on the way to us. And so Jesus, today we're going to talk about Jesus is the coming new world bringer. That's the title of our sermon. That's really what this text is about. We should be looking towards his coming. Our face should be turned away from the world and the things of the world and toward heaven, looking for his coming from heaven, bringing heaven with him, because he is the coming New World Bringer. Now, um, John Eldridge, who many of you are probably familiar with, he's written a number of books, but he had, he had one book where he used an analogy that kind of, that really set uh, the stage for what he was writing in the book. He talked about a sea lion who had lost the sea, and of course, that would be a sad thing for a sea lion because a sea lion's made for the sea. And he had come to live in a country known as the Barren Lands, far from the coast, up in the mountains, a dry and dusty place where there was just one tiny water hole, not big enough for him to get in and swim around in, but only to get a drink from and only when it rained. And it was an, exi- it was a, it was an image there that he's painting of exile, of lostness, of not-at-homeness. The sea lion, of course, was made for the sea, and as Eldridge tells his story, the sea lion eventually just resigns himself to living in this new place. He gives up on the hopes and dreams. At first he dreams of the sea, he smells it on the wind, he holds out hope, he remembers the place for which he was made for, but eventually his disappointment gets the best of him. And he stops dreaming of the sea and he settles into his new life there until the water hole begins to dry up. And as it dries up, he has no choice but to go in search of the sea. Now that's very much, sounds very much like Hebrews chapter 11 to me. Let me read this verse to you again from that passage where it says, Acknowledging we are strangers and exiles on earth, leaving the land which we are living in and going out and seeking a homeland, desiring a better country, a heavenly one. And for Eldridge, that meant entering more deeply into desire. And the title of the book is Journey of Desire. And he meant by that to learn to live with ache. I mean, to learn, to learn to live that our experience, as long as we live in this world, is going to be one of ache. Because as Lewis said, all of our havings are wantings. The very best parts of life. I mean, we're going to all go to um, you know, Thanksgiving celebrations this week. And it's supposed to be, well, some of us, depending upon how you feel about what's going on with the, with the virus and whatnot. But for many of us, I think there's the expectation anyway that, that Wednesday might, or Thursday might be the best day in a very long year that's not had very many good days in it right? At least we're hoping for that. And yet, if experience has told us anything, we know even from the past that the best days, like these days when we get to celebrate with family and friends, carry with them a feeling of incompleteness. They never quite live up to everything we hope they will be. And that's going to be our case, even, that's going to be our, our, our experience, even in the best of things in life, until we come into the new heavens and the new earth. Peter puts it this way, verse 11, he says, since all these things are thus, to be dissolved. Since we're headed for this moment when the world is going to start to melt away and the new world is going to be pushed forth, what sort of people ought you to be? Do you see that there in verse 11? 
Now, let me translate that a bit here. Here's what that means, taking the original language into, into account. He says, since these things are to be dissolved, from what country ought we to live? That's the, what the word means there. What kind of lives should we live as citizens of heaven during our exile on the earth? And here's the argument that Peter makes. It's pretty straightforward. He says, on the one hand, the world will soon be no more. And, and we belong to heaven and not to the world, and therefore we should be living heavenly lives and not earthly lives. Don't waste your time on stuff that will soon be gone. Go ahead and start practicing for heaven. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. John said it this way, Do not love the world or the things of the world, for the world's passing away. And it's not a perfect analogy, but you could think of it this way. Imagine you have a house here in Florida, and your house needs a new air conditioning unit. It works okay. You know, you can get through at least the next few months. I mean, July is coming, August is coming, and you know, it's not very efficient. It's kind of hot and humid in there, but it's enough. It's 20 years old. But you have this sinking suspicion you're not going to stay in the house long term. So do you want to spend the $10,000 for a new AC unit on a house that you're not going to be in in two or three years? Or do you just make do until you can get out of there, right? That's what Peter's saying. Why would you, why would you spend all this time and energy investing in something that is destined to just pass away? I mean, what does a heavenly life look like? What does it look like to go out in search of the sea? like Eldridge's sea lion does. And it's what comes next. In verse 11, he says, what kinds of people ought we to be? Living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. And so a life of godliness, holiness and godliness. Now, both of those words are important in the Bible, so let's look at each for a moment, and we'll do it in reverse order. Godliness there refers to a Godward life. It's a word that means piety or reverence. Because all of life is lived in reference to God. So sin is godlessness. Sin is putting God on the periphery of your life when he deserves to be right in the middle of everything. He, he deserves to be your center, your starting point for every single thing that happens. You live your life along the vertical axis and then the horizontal axis is what, is what godliness means. But it's always the vertical axis first. And so you read, you think about all different kinds of applications of this. I mean, Biblically, Christians engage politically along the vertical axis. Isn't that what the Bible calls us to do? First Timothy, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for kings and all who are in high positions so that we can live a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified. So the quiet, right, it's a life that's quiet on the horizontal axis but wearing God out in prayer. Godliness. Godly parenting is baptizing your kids and taking vows before the church and bringing your parenting into the reality of God and the promises that he's made and committing yourself to parent through the means of grace, putting God at the very center of the work you're trying to do with your kids. I mean, God, godliness at work is doing your work for him, not for the sake of your career or for the paycheck. You do it unto him. Or if you're a student, you go to school and you take the tests and you do your homework and you do it all unto the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As unto the Lord, you're serving the Lord, the Bible says. Everything is unto him, that's godliness. But also holiness. A godly life is a holy life. And holiness just refers to a life that stands out, that's different, that's weird. You'll do things differently than everybody else. You're going to have different motivations and different goals and 
you won't just do the stuff that everybody else is doing, and they'll think you're weird. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a citizen of heaven, living as an exile on the earth, people ought to regularly be looking at you and saying, you're not, you aren't from around here, are you? Do you get that? Do you ever get that? That ought to be a regular occurrence. And if not, it means something's kind of off in the way that we're living our lives. Maybe we, maybe we become too accustomed to the ways of, of the world rather than living from our true citizenship. And here's where you're going to feel it. You'll feel it in loneliness. I see this in my kids. And it really, it really just makes me so sad. I felt it as a kid. And it's just one piece of advice. Parents, if you're going to raise godly, holy kids, they're going to have to go through a bunch of loneliness. And you've got to be there to help them through it. You've got to be there on Friday nights to do fun things with them when, when they can't find somebody else to go out and do things with because, because they're trying to live differently than everybody they're going to school with. The number one goal of middle school, high school years is to not stand out, right? And yet the Bible says there's only one way to be a real Christian. You're going to stand out. People are going to think you're weird. They're going to alienate you because you're not like them. And you've got to reckon with that. We've all got to reckon with that. Because we're called to lives that are lives of godliness and holiness. And so what sort of people ought we to be? Holy and godly. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God there. Verse 11. Peter is building an argument here. He's saying that the earth will soon be dissolved. And so live a heavenly life and not an earthly life. And a heavenly life is a godly life. It's a holy life. And this godly, holy life is a life of both waiting for his coming and also hastening his coming. And these are basically the two gap t- categories that I used last week, so I don't want to be redundant, but let's just look at each of those for just a minute. So waiting, he says. You have to, you're going to be a, it's going to be a life of waiting because God is slow. But actually, he isn't slow. He's patient. But his patience can feel like he's just moving slow. And I'm talking about verse 9. So look there. He says, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some of you count slowness. He's being patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I just want to say to us, you just can't be in a hurry. Because God is not in a hurry. And the reason is, the reason is that he refuses to give up on people. Isn't that great? I mean, that's a really beautiful verse. It's a famous verse because it really does teach a profound truth. God is a person who keeps hoping that more and more people repent. And that's really good news. Because he, he just refuses to give up on people. And you know why that's good news for you and me? It means he won't give up on us either. I mean, the truth is there are a thousand million details that he's involved in at any given moment. And you and I, we might be consciously aware of one or maybe two. There's always something much bigger going on, whatever it is that's going on with me. And all the good stuff we know takes time. A pineapple, which is my favorite fruit, has to grow for two years before the fruit's ready. I mean, there's no such thing as a yummy microwave dinner. At least I've not met it. Maybe I'm buying the wrong things. All the best things take time. And so we wait. We wait because salvation is grace. It comes not from us. It comes to us. It's the most basic doctrine of the Christian faith. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth that is not here now. And that we have no power to bring into being. It takes God's action We are waiting for the Savior who is now in heaven to come and bring heaven with him. And Peter says, verse 10, that he'll come like a thief. In other words, when you're you're not expecting it, right? When everybody's asleep and not paying attention. Because this is the way God does things. He does it on his own schedule and in his own way to remind you that you're not in control, he is. 
And the salvation is not what you do, it's what he does. He's sovereign in it. He is sovereign in his grace. And so we wait. But not just waiting. Look here, it says that we live a life of holiness and godliness, waiting and also hastening the coming of the day. And I've always been fascinated by this phrase because it means what it sounds like it means. It means that we can actually speed up the timeline of his coming. How about that? Now, how, of course, right? That's the question. I mean, well, exactly how does that work? Well, look there. If God is waiting for repentance, then we can hasten his coming through our own repentance. If God is slow in coming because he wants as many people to hear and believe the gospel as possible and reach repentance, then we can hasten his coming through evangelism. I mean, Matthew 24, 14 seems to indicate this as well. It says that the end will not come until the gospel has been preached to every tribe and nation and people and tongue on the earth. And so we can do that work. And hasten is coming. But the main point is that waiting doesn't mean sitting around and twiddling your thumbs. There's work to do. The new heavens and the new earth is already breaking through. We're in what the Bible calls the last days. The days uh, between the first and second coming of Jesus. The old aeon of sin and death is on the way out. The new aeon has already begun and we belong to the new and not to the old. The Bible says this. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. It's not time to be asleep, it's time to be awake, to be active, to be going about the work of the day. And the temptation in all of this talk of Jesus' second coming is to just bunker down, become idle, just wait it out, but there's work to do. We can speed his coming. You with me? You awake? And that's the balance. That's what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. To be both waiting and also working to hasten the day of his coming. Now, let me just finish by saying this. This passage really is uh, just putting forth the doctrine of judgment day. The day of God, it says here. The day of the Lord. The day when Jesus will come back. It will be a day of fire and judgment. And we will all stand before him. That's our destination. That's what Christianity teaches. If you're here, whether you believe or not, it doesn't, doesn't matter. What, what, what Christianity says is that every single person who's ever lived, that there's a day appointed when they will stand before God to give account of their life. And the books will be open. And all things will be judged and everything will be made right. Now, this is not a popular doctrine these days. And that's really not a good thing because the world is full of injustice. I mean, the world is full of wrong. There are terrible things that happen in the world we live in. And there are only a few options as you navigate all of the pain and the sadness, particularly of a year like 2020. You can allow the pain, the sadness, the injustice of, of life to kill the parts of you that wants justice. You can become numb to all of, the, to all of the, the sadness that life brings. You can just become cynical and stop caring, try to shut your heart down, or or you can become an activist and throw yourself against all the things that are wrong in the world and then burn out by the time you're 25 and realize, I can't do this. Or you might actually gain some power, gain some, right? You might see some victory and gain the power that you think you need to correct the justice, but then because you're sinful too, you just realize that you become the oppressor that you hate. Or you can believe in the doctrine of Judgment Day. That at the end of everything, a completely good and impartial judge will open the books and everything will be put right. 
Every justice will be, injustice will be corrected. No one will get away with anything. Every grievance will be made up for. Every sad thing will come untrue. But if you believe in Judgment Day, what Peter's saying here is that it can, it can actually sharpen your sense of justice. You can, you can be a person who really does, you're motivated in any way to really work for justice in the world. But it also can calm you down. At the same time, where you can wait, you can just chill out a little. Not too much, but a little. Because the end will be the rectification of all things. And whatever injustice you come up against in the world now, it's just a temporary thing. And, by the way, your justice is not the justice the world needs. God help us. If my justice becomes the standard. And so there are two types of people. There are those who are dreading Judgment Day. And then there are those who who have come through that experience and actually have begun to long for it. So you can be dreading Judgment Day, and and, and really the Bible says that there is this hidden existential dread that we all experience, that the sting of death is sin, sin is what Paul says. And so what really makes death so scary is that somewhere inside, every single one of us, whether you claim to believe or not, we all know that on the other side of death, God is waiting and we're going to have to stand before him, and it's a terrifying experience. It's a terrifying thing to live with. To know, I mean, that appointment on your calendar is not something you circle with like a little heart and put like little things on it, right? That is a terrifying reality to be facing. But it's possible to become a person who stops dreading the judgment day and actually is a person who, like here, that word hastening means, the, the word hastening means longing. It means looking to, looking forward to, putting your hope in, actually being a person who longs for the day when Jesus stands in judgment over all things. But of course, how does that happen? What makes the difference? How do you become a person who doesn't just dread, but actually longs for judgment day? Well, you have to understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Look at the text. Peter's very clear. On judgment day, who passes? Is it the good person? Is it the religious person who can say, look, God, I did this and this and this for you. Aren't you proud of me? And God will say, oh, yes, your life was full of wonderful work, so come. And no, that's not it at all. That gets it all wrong. That's not Christianity. In verse 9, it gives it to us. It says that the the person who passes on the day of judgment is the person who repents. Plain and simple. And so it's not the good person who will stand on judgment day, but the person who knows they're not good. And who admits it. And who owns it. I mean, if you stand... On that day, if you try to stand on that day in your own record, you'll be condemned. But if you turn from your sin, and if you turn from your own righteousness, and if you recognize that Jesus Christ lived and died for you, and if you stand on that day in him, in his righteousness, in his record, then you will not be condemned. This is the message of Christianity. You will pass through the judgment. And here's the thing. You'll be happier and more beautiful for having gone through it. Now I'm going to take the silence there as, really? Because I don't, I mean, really? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible says. In Philippians 3, Paul says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And so there's this idea that floats around that Christians won't face judgment. And I just don't, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know how you could read the Bible and come to that conclusion. It's just not true. We will face judgment. We just won't be condemned by it. I mean, the good news of the gospel transforms even the idea of judgment into a positive experience. 
Because being face to face with him and seeing him as he really is will be the thing that will bring all the beauty out of you. That's what the Bible says. The fire won't burn you. The fire he talks about here, it will burn away all the ugliness that still clings to you. And there'll be a time you'll come through it and the old you will be no more. And that's great news, at least for me. That the old me will finally be gone. But here's the thing, not only you, but it says the whole, the, the world, the old world will be no more. That there will be a whole new world that comes as a result of this, of this day that, that Peter's talking about here. So judgment day is the doorway to the new heavens and the new earth. This new world that he's bringing in which righteousness dwells. Jesus Christ is the coming new world bringer. And the only response to that is, even so, come Lord Jesus. Right? Are you sure? You with me? You there? I mean, that is the place that we should live from. That is the hope. Come, Lord Jesus. It's how the Bible ends. Because it's where the Bible leads us. It's where we should live from. So it's exactly what we pray. Now, the old hymn by Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, uh, which was translated by one of the Wesley brothers, I forget which one, based upon this text, sums all of this up. He sums up what the posture of the Christian is in light of these things. And let me just read it to you, and then we're going to pray. But it says this. He says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Bold, listen to these words. Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. From, when from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies, even then... This shall be my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Amen. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for this good news of the world that is coming and of the one that is coming to bring it, our Savior, our brother, the Lord Jesus, the one who has gone forward ahead of us into heaven, who is preparing a place for us there, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwell. And the promise of the scriptures is, is that he's coming again and that when he comes, all of the hopes and the dreams for ourselves, all of the hopes and the dreams for the world that we have will finally come to fruition and we will finally be at home in the place that we belong, in the, in the country which is our home country, uh, though we never knew it. And so, Father, as we navigate this awful year, and for many of us, uh, a week full of celebrations that are just still tinged with some incompleteness, with some sadness, with some longing, because it's just not the way that we want for it to be. Man, that's a great window into what all of life feels like, because we have not been made for this world. We have been made for the world to come. And so give us the power renewed by the promise of the gospel to live waiting for and even hastening that day, living lives of godliness and holiness before you, an exiled people that point, that point the world that we live in to the good news of the coming new world bringer. Oh, Father, we pray this so that you might be glorified. Jesus, we look to you and not to ourselves for the righteousness that we need to stand in that day. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and make this good news truly good news to our hearts so that we would now sing in response uh, to all that you have um, said to us this morning. 
So Spirit, come now in this song and um, shape this hope in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Of course, Martin Luther wrote that hymn, and, and Luther was a bold soul, and he believed that Christians should live boldly. He, he was just kind of out of the box. He even said, you know, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. <laughs> and by that, he meant that sin, knowing that no matter your sin, it is no match for God's grace for you in Jesus. And here's the thing. No matter what we face as we are sent now to go into the world, no matter what we face, it is no match for God's power and God's love for us. And so as we can, we can look to the day of judgment with boldness, we can look forward to this next week with boldness and confidence, knowing who we belong and knowing the promises that he makes to us, which is what this benediction is about, that he promises to go with us and to be for us and to have his face turned toward us in all things. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then you live from these words, amen? And that means you live a life of waiting, but also hastening his coming, boldly believing uh, his love for you. And so receive the benediction to that end. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you as you go now and give you his peace now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.